LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Kristen Zeman and Steve Castevens about the importance of responder mental health and well-being. The topic of police is quite polarizing right now in the media and social media. Um, how does public opinion affect the way that officers think of themselves and their profession? Well, I don't care what profession you're, you're in, you want to be liked. <laughs> you want to be liked by the public. You want the public to think uh, that you're doing a good job. And so public opinion, and that's a tough thing to quantify public opinion because the public opinion are the, typically the people with the loudest voices, uh, not necessarily the opinion of everyone in the public. So what you're hearing uh, in the last few weeks, the people with the loudest voices are the people who are deriding law enforcement for a variety of things. And what law enforcement officers don't hear enough are the rest of the public who say, um, hey, by the way, you guys are doing a great job. Um, saw you drive by my house the other night, wave, thanks. Um, I think you guys are doing great. Um, it, you, I don't think you hear enough of that. And, you know, part of it may be that we don't do a good enough job of marketing ourselves, all the good things that our officers do. Um, I think some agencies have gotten better over the last couple of years using social media and things like that and pushing out um, feel-good things that their department does. But uh, uh, does does public opinion affect law enforcement the way they feel about themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely every day. And if it didn't, you wouldn't see officers resigning. Absolutely agreed. And just the conversations yesterday uh, with some of my frontline officers, it was someone genuinely asked the question, but what did we do wrong? You know, and and they're and they're so hurt by you know, all of the the rhetoric. And and again, it this just goes back to, you know, when one person in our profession tarnishes our badge, it affects all of us, you know, because we wear this uniform. And and in having conversations with some of the protesters, you know, I said, you you are looking at a uniform, you know, and and you know, and I'm I'm a relatively small stature, but I had a, you know, big giant cop standing next to me, you know, the guy with tattoos. And I'm like, you guys see this uniform and, you know, but you don't see as as a you know us as as a human. You know, I said, you don't know this guy, you know, he's got tattoos and mirrored sunglasses. You know, but what you don't know, you know, is his heart. And, you know, I think there are a lot of police officers like, well, gosh, I wish I could just show people, you know, how I feel. And, you know, and these are, you know, these are tough guys just saying, you know, we're, I'm, I'm not a monster, you know, and that's what I'm hearing is like, there is really, there really are a lot of officers, you know, just questioning why, why, why are we so hated, especially when we're doing the right thing. And what I had to remind them again, is what I said earlier, is that you are the same person, we are the same department that we were 
or two weeks ago when everyone liked us, you know? And what I think is happening right now is even the public, and this is also a hard conversation to have as well, is even the public, um, I think right now, currently are afraid to support the police because it's almost like, you know, this this division, this, this dichotomy is that if you support the police, that must mean that you don't support Black Lives Matter. And that's not, the two are not mutually exclusive. I mean, there is, there is conversations to be had in that arena. And that's what I mean about having hard conversations. We have to have those. And so, but what I'm finding and what I reminded these officers is that our, our atrium, our lobby is filled with food. People started dropping off food. And I said, so even you have a lot of supporters out there. And even when you look at Gallup polls, you know, you look at, at law enforcement and they are actually relatively high, you know, in, in, um, in support, you know, you have Congress that's I think the lowest, right. Or elected officials and police officers are way up there. And, you know, so we just have to be reminded. And honestly, it's, it's, it's once again, what I told them to do is to go out there and have conversations with people, even if they're hard conversations, but I think what we need to do is, is rekindle the humanity in one another. We need to see people as people and, and that just telling people, this is our job. This is what, this is uniform is the job that I do. It's a law enforcement officer, but I am a human being. And, and we also have to see our citizens that way. Even those who break the law are still human beings. We can't judge people on on their worst days, right? Or on the days that they have, um, you know, overdosed or on the days that they have committed a crime. You can't judge people in that same way. And so that's what I think needs to happen is this is just, we need to see each other's humanity. Yeah, and the conversation about, you know, the silent majority being pretty quiet, 324 million people in the United States, I would argue that again, based on what Kristen said about Gallup polls, everything that we know is that the vast majority of Americans uh, support and trust the police. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement, but the reality is right now, everything is about rhetoric, whether it's social media, whether it's about selling advertising for media companies. And I've recently had some conversations with colleagues, uh, trainers in the profession, other folks in the profession that they wanna go out and they wanna fight this conversation with data. Uh, and the reality is until the rhetoric stops, until the emotion slows down, we can't even begin to listen and have a conversation about how things need to change. So I think in, in fairness, um, you know, putting boxing gloves on and going to want to go fight with somebody who's the loudest at the moment isn't good for anybody. And I think that's some of why you see the silent majority just being quiet, letting things calm down. And I think we as police leaders have an opportunity to model that as well. Be part of the listening, be part of the conversation. But at this point, throwing, throwing data, statistics over arguments, is this is a highly emotional conversation. And we as law enforcement professionals need to own our part uh, in the history of racial tension in this country. That's a reality that you're not going to be able to, not to deny, and we have to do a better job. Of course, mental health is a huge part of Respond to Resilience, that discussion, but many people feel uncomfortable talking about it in relation to work. Um, so Kristen, what is the attitude towards mental health in the law enforcement profession? That's a very tough question. Um, the attitude, I think, is still a stigma, and I think that um, I think that it's slowly moving into you know a different culture. But you know, it takes a long time to change a culture. But what I have found is just that. I mean, you know, I, I, 
tell a story of um, an officer who was um, distraught over a tollway accident that he responded to. And it was a trooper whose car got hit and the trooper was on fire and the officer, you know, crawled into the car and, you know, rescued him. And he called me that night and he said, I'm, I'm struggling right now. And uh, I wasn't even in his chain of command. And so I talked to him and the following morning, I brought it up. This was before I was chief. I brought it up to my command staff and um, my colleagues and my chief. And I said, we need to check, start checking in with these officers after these events. And uh, the response was, oh, I guess we have to go make sure everybody's okay. What a bunch of mamby pambies. And I didn't know what that phrase meant. So I had to look it up, but it's not nice. Um, and I remember thinking in that moment, oh my gosh, you know, it, it, the resistance from my colleagues just to check in on people who are hurting, you know, just tells me that's the mentality is that if you ask for help, you are weak. And I know that they made that assumption about that officer who called me is that, oh, yeah, that guy can't handle the job. Right. You know, and, and this guy was, you know, I mean, he needed to be talked off the proverbial ledge. And that's the problem. And I vowed when I became chief that I was going to try to change the culture. So that was five years ago. And we are still not there. There are still people um, that have an issue with asking for help. And, you know, I uh, had an officer who, and you're, here, here's a, the precise reason why. I had an officer who uh, was going to attempt suicide. He, he um, had his, he was off duty. He took his duty weapon and he left his home and he decided he was going to kill himself. He was going to shoot himself in the head. So he left his home because he was conscious of, he didn't want to leave a mess in the house and he didn't want his wife and children to find him. So this was after midnight and he walked outside and he made a little deal with himself. He said, I'm going to make one phone call. And if this person answers the phone, I will talk to them and I won't, I won't follow through with it. So he makes that phone call. And again, after midnight, by the grace of God, this person answers the phone and calls uh, us immediately and gets a, a fellow officer who is working at the time, comes over and the officer says, yep, I was going to kill myself. And he then um, agrees to uh, uh, voluntarily go into the hospital. So he spends two weeks in, 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 a, in an institution for mental health. Well, in our state, uh, we have what's called a firearms owner identification card. And in order to be a police officer, you have to be eligible to possess that card. But you are ineligible if you have spent any time in a mental health facility. So this man who did the right thing, made a phone call and asked for help, was then denied his FOID card, which meant that even though he went through the help he needed, his doctor signed off on a release for him to come back to work we, the city, sent him to an independent doctor who also signed off and said, this man has made it through. He's, he's okay to come back to work, but our state would not allow him. So this man for a year and a half was off work. He, he was put on admin leave um, and he couldn't be a police officer because he was fighting to get his FOID card back so he could become a police officer again. And we went through hearings. I had to appeal it and it took that long. What message do you think that that sent to my police department? Whatever you do, don't ask for help. 
So what that is doing to our officers is, is I felt like was we were making progress that took us 10 steps backwards. So now is, you know, we, unfortunately that law has been changed, but the stigma still remains is that whatever you do, don't ask for help. So what does that mean? Now we have officers who are ticking time bombs, who are out there, um, the thousand tiny cuts, the thing that bothers them, the accident that they saw, you know, the homicide scene that they, you know, they just got, they just cleared. That's all playing in a film reel of their head. And then they go home and, and then, and then they can't deal with it and they can't ask for help because, you know, they may lose their job um, or get stripped of their, of their, of their official duties. So that just tells people not to ask for help. And I firmly believe that hurt people hurt people. And so now you have officers that are struggling. And so then that transcends onto the street, you know, when something happens. And then now I'm um, potentially looking at an officer who might use excessive force where if they would just got the help they needed. So it just manifests itself. So that's a long answer uh, to the problem that we are still having with the stigma of asking for help. And we have to change that. That's a great explanation, Kristen. I'll just add a couple of things to that. Um, and it, it, the stigma is the biggest issue in law enforcement. And I think law enforcement leaders, uh, their job is to make it okay to not be okay. It's got to be okay to ask for help in our profession. Um, we've got to take care of our officers. Officers go to suicides and they go to car crashes and then they go to burning buildings and they go to child abuse calls and they, and this builds up over weeks and months and years and years of a career. And I, uh, I spoke to a woman several years ago who was telling me a story about whether she, she was driving into uh, town to go shopping one day and she saw something in the ditch and she stopped and backed up and it was a dead body in the ditch. Clearly a pedestrian had been hit by a car and the car fled the scene and this person was killed. And she's telling me this story and I could see her hands kind of shaking a little bit and I could hear the cracking in her voice. I'm like. Lord, that, that's terrible. You know, when did this happen? And she said, like 20, 25 years ago. I'm like, what? I thought this happened like last week. 20 to 25 years ago, and this still bothered her. This person saw one dead body in her lifetime. Police officers see hundreds. And if this is valid, that this affected this woman, how do you think it affects police officers? And all the tragedy and horror that they see during their career, of course it affects them, because we're all part of the human race. So we have to make sure our officers are okay. And I know it's kind of an unfair comparison, but this is the best comparison that I can say that we lost 128 officers last year in line of duty. We lost 228 officers to suicide. That's frightening to me. And that tells me that we have a lot of work to do yet to tell our officers it's okay to ask for help. When I uh, took over as police chief here in Buffalo Grove in 2013, uh, the very first memo that I put out to everybody on our police department was about mental health and police officer suicide. That was the very first memo I put out. And it's important, as important today as it was back in 2013. And so we have to have avenues for our officers to seek help. I was asked by a, a Chicago Tribune reporter last year on this topic, 
and he said something effect of, well, as a chief, if, if an officer comes to you for help and, and they need to seek uh, help from a psychologist for mental health issues, do you really want that officer back on the street? I said, are you kidding me? That would be the best officer back on the street. Because I know that officer came and asked for help because they knew they needed help and they got it. I'm more concerned about the officers on the street who haven't asked for help and probably need it. Kristen, I would love to get your feedback on just this thought I was having. So uh, when I speak uh, publicly a lot around leadership and, and suicide and mental health and who we need to normalize these mental health challenges, I, I often talk about the idea of courage. We need to empower our officers to have the courage to ask for the help that they need. But the backside of that conversation, I think, is that we need to create courageous uh, cultures where we call each other out and hold each other accountable. Uh, when, for example, I see a coworker who, uh, I, you know, I look at them, something isn't quite right. Um, how do I then create an opportunity to intervene and, and, you know, have the hard conversation with them? Because what we know for sure is that um, there is a problem uh, frequently when it comes to mental health that ends up uh, being an alcoholism issue or a drug addiction issue that turns into an intimate partner violence issue. All of those things as to what you said, you know, hurt people, hurt people, not only the public side, the communities that we serve, but our relationships as well. So I'm curious from a culture standpoint, what your thoughts are about those comments about courage and how do we do a better job as police leaders? Yeah, I think that, you know, and I can use this as an example, you know, people um, in, in, in trying to change the culture. Um, what I have found actually is that, you know, I get it that the leader sets the tone and, you know, gives permission uh, for officers to ask for help. But the truth of the matter is it's not the leader um, that actually makes this change in our profession. It's actually um, I think followers are underrated, and I think actually the power is in the follower, and here is what I mean by that um, to answer your question, is that after our mass shooting, um, I I had, and I walked in, it was right after we uh, left the scene, and I was getting rushed to do a press conference, and I walked into our police department, and I saw, you know, one of our SWAT guys, and he's standing there, and he's got his long gun, you know, hanging on him, you know, and I walked up to him, and I go, how are you? And he said, I'm fine, you know, and I, and, I, and I literally grabbed his face and I looked into his eyes and I said, how are you? And he fell apart. He, he literally fell into my arms and he started crying. And it was about that time that we had made the phone call to our mental health professionals to get to the PD. Uh, we called, um, you know, um, counselors and we said, just show up at the PD. So I had a whole bunch of them coming in and I said, I need you to go into that room and to talk to someone. And he said, I'm good, I'm, I'm good. And I said, you're not good. And I said, just give me three minutes. And I basically, you know, kind of put my boots, you know, and, and you know, pushed him in there. And, um, and so he walked in there and I said, just three minutes, just, just give her three minutes or him or whoever is in there is, is a counselor. Three minutes turned into 30 minutes. Here's what happened. That officer walked out, that big tough guy who was an informal leader and he walked out and he looked at his comrades and he said, get your butt in there. Um, and so it was that what changed the culture. So I all day can say, guys, go, just go, you know, it's fine. Go ask for help. There's nothing weak about it. It's about, you know, it's, it's the courageous that ask for help. Those are words, right? But then when you get that person, that is when the culture begins to change is when the big tough guy looks at his buddies and says, 
I cannot tell you how much that helped me. I had a couple people walk out who said I was absolutely defiant about going in there. And I planned on sitting there with my arms crossed and not talking. And then what happened is they started talking. And then even after the fact, we had our counselors in there for weeks on end after the event, because we knew that this was a, a big one. And many officers said, I didn't realize that the thing that was happening to me waking up in the middle of the night or the thing where I stopped doing my hobby um, that I loved was part of this, um, this, this reaction to this incident that happened. I didn't put the two and two together. And so that allowed them to get the help. And then they started telling other people, man, you got to go talk to this person. It was awesome. I feel so much better. That is how you change a culture. And so, so again, as the leader, leaders are overrated. It's actually those, the, the people in the organization that, that truly take the risk. Those are the courageous ones to say, man, I walked in there and, and I got help. My guy, Pete, who tried to kill himself, he says, man, I, I asked for help. That is the courageous guy in our police department, you know? And so I think that is where we have to begin is that, and then that peer support, that's when they go to other officers and say, okay, I think I'm going to, who do I go talk to? And then that's when these issues start to come out. And then you find out there are substance abuse issues or they're medicating with alcohol or their relationships are suffering at home because they clam up and don't want to talk. Again, I, I can't say enough how much it transcends into a personal life and then how that then in turns, it's cyclical, transcends into how they treat people on the street. So this is a, uh, this is a, a, a disease that we have to treat. And I think, I think it's about it, that culture changes with people inside the department who are courageous enough to say, I got help, you should too. Before we wrap up today, we want to emphasize that if you're struggling right now, please reach out and ask for help. Your life is so important and it's okay to ask for help. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thank you to Kristen and Steve for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Thanks also to Roy for co-hosting this series with us and offering his insight as well. Next week, we'll continue our discussion with Kristen and Steve as we discuss the resources that responders will need moving forward from a crisis. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you again next week.